Hi, I'm Jonathan Groves, and welcome to the Cranmer Fellows Podcast. This is a podcast that explores pastoral ministry from an Anglican perspective. If you are a pastor, ministry leader, or an aspiring minister, I, along with my co-host, Matt Kennedy, pray that this podcast will help equip and encourage you in your ministry to Christ Church. This podcast is an arm of the pastoral training program, the Cranmer Fellowship, at Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York. Church of the Good Shepherd is a congregation committed to following the Lord Jesus Christ and sharing the good news of His life, death, and resurrection through the study, exposition, proclamation, and application of His Word, the Scriptures. If you would like more information about the Cranmer Fellowship, Church of the Good Shepherd, or if you want to reach out to us about this podcast, please do so by emailing us at cranmerfellowship.com at gmail.com. Now, let's get to today's episode. Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 18, so we're going right along. It's good to be back, um, back recording episodes. I'm without my co-host, Matt Kennedy, again this week. I will be for a couple more weeks as he's getting some much needed rest. I'm not alone, however. Uh, Today, I am joined by the Reverend Clayton Hutchins. Uh, Clayton and his wife, Ivy, have been married for almost 10 years. Uh, They have two kids, Lily and Peter, and they live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where Clayton serves as the vicar of Holy Cross Anglican Church. Holy Cross is in the Diocese of the Living Word, which is the diocese that uh, Church of the Good Shepherd, where Matt and I serve, um, we're part of as well. On top of being a husband, father, and vicar, Clayton also teaches in a classical Christian school. He teaches ninth grade Bible, literature, history, Latin, and Spanish. And if I missed one, he'll 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 let me know. Uh, And if that were not enough, uh, he also co-hosts the BCP Proper's podcast with the Reverend Stephen Wedgworth, where they discuss the Sunday proper readings appointed in the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Clayton, thanks for being on the podcast, especially since you're such a busy guy. Oh, well, I'm really grateful to have the invitation and um, just thinking, man, I got some big shoes to fill with Matt Kennedy gone. I'll see what I can do. But uh, yeah, no, I'm honored. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. Man, tell me about this podcast you and Stephen uh, started. This is a, a recent startup? Yeah, it's 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 recently been uh, made public. It's something we had been working on, um, but we decided to release it publicly um, uh, at the start of Trinity season. So we've actually been <clears throat> uh, recording since around January. Those episodes will come out when we get there in the church year. And then I think we'll start um, at that time uh, uh, doing um, episodes on some of the non-Sunday feast days. Um, so that's kind of the plan, I think, going forward. But yeah, so it's it's the BCP Proper's podcast where Stephen and I, we both use the 1662 Book of Common Prayer International Edition um, at our parishes. And so we have the same lectionary readings that we use and we both um, typically preach the lectionary as well, uh, though we also both preach through like books of the Bible and do um, 
you know, maybe a topical series or, or things like that as well. But so for us, it kind of doubles as um, sermon prep and um, as well as, as just trying to kind of explain for people what some of the connections are between these historic lectionary readings um, that have been, you know, in our prayer book uh, for, you know, over 300 years. Um, and it's been very insightful. I've really enjoyed how it's, it, it's really gotten me into the scriptures and, 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 and made me see things that I hadn't seen before. So yeah, that's a, a newer podcast that we have. We're just about six episodes in. It should be available on all major uh, podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple. Uh, I don't even know what else people use. <laughs> Those are the two I use. Um, so the yeah, you should find it, 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 it at least on there. Yes. Um, so just look up BCP Propers and you'll see the, the green prayer book with a cross on it. That's the one. Great. Well, I started listening to it today, actually, and I'm, I'm excited to follow you guys uh, through that. That's going to be really helpful. We're going to talk today um, probably a lot about what you guys talk about on that podcast. Um, we'll we'll talk more about the, the BCP a little later in the show, but I want to first talk about you for a, a little bit, if that's okay. We first met in 2021 at um, ADLW's, that's Anglican Diocese of the Living Word, uh, the annual synod, uh, but you were not a part of the diocese at that time. In fact, you didn't consider yourself Anglican yet at that time. Am I right? Yeah, I uh, I was visiting. Um, so I was still Presbyterian um, and ordained minister um, in the PCA. I also served in the OPC. Um, and yeah, so I was visiting as a Presbyterian minister, essentially, at that time. So no, I was not yet anglican um in terms of my church affiliation so okay so you were a presbyterian minister so then you you were the pastor somewhere right yeah so i served as assistant pastor of a pca church in louisville kentucky uh which is where i went to seminary um and then um uh i served as pastor of a opc church in um a, a suburb of Pittsburgh, Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. So that's where I previously had served before coming to the Diocese of the Living Word. Yes, yeah, so this was interesting to me. Um, you you went to Bethlehem College and Seminary, which is a, a Baptist right college and seminary. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, then you received your MDiv from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, um, but you were Presbyterian. Uh, before mm-hmm. becoming Anglican, can you walk me through your journey into Anglicanism? Like, were you a Baptist, then Presbyterian first, or always Presbyterian? What did that look like for you? I was definitely uh, a Baptist. Uh, I was raised Baptist. Um, you know, uh, my parents are both Baptists. They were raised Baptist as well. Um, and so, yeah, that is definitely my my church background. Um, kind of since high school, I sensed a call to ministry. And at the time I was, um, we weren't actually at a Baptist church. We had a non-denominational credo-baptistic church. Um, but that particular church actually differed in some ways from Baptists in certain areas, but, you know, still credo-baptist and, um, non-denominational kind of setting. Um, but I actually, through just my own study had gotten into some of the works of, um, the, 
like new Calvinist authors like John Piper, um, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul. So I was reading those guys and I would have called myself, you know, Calvinist and Reformed and that sort of thing. And um, so that's what got me interested in going to Bethlehem College in Minneapolis, which is the school that John Piper was and I think still is the chancellor of. Um, And yeah, so uh, was not always um, Presbyterian. No, I was I was definitely Baptist there. And then um, at the end of my Bible college, I I knew I needed to also get an MDiv. Um, so ended up, I, I considered a few different options, um, but ended up going with the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, uh, which is where I ended up changing my mind on, on baptism, which, yeah, <laughs> kind of threw a wrench in um, the, the plans I had up to that point as far as, you know, church um, context in which I would serve. At the Baptist school, you changed your views on baptism. Yeah. <laughs> what did the, what the Southern Baptist the, yeah, Seminary? The yes. one. <laughs> yeah. What did that look like? If you don't mind me asking. Like what? How, what changed your mind there? You know, a, a variety of factors I think um, were were developing. Like through my college um, education, I kind of just got a broadened view of like the theological treasures of the church. Um, so we were reading from across the centuries, like at the time going into Bible college, I mainly just wanted to read John Piper, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, and, you know, maybe some Puritans, but that was it. Um, but, but seminary kind of broadened my reading uh, even more than it had been, or, or yeah, I meant to say uh, 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 Bible college broadened my reading more than it had been. And so I began reading um, early church fathers um, you know, Augustine, uh, Anselm, Aquinas, and uh, the Reformers, Calvin, Luther, um, and, you know, a lot of primary sources, a lot of great secondary sources. And that kind of just brought in my view of the church. And um, uh, I came through our study of like the Reformation period, I came to more of a kind of Calvinist view of spiritual presence, um, rather than just kind of a mere m- memorial view. Um and, and also, as a Baptist, that affected my view of baptism, too. I started to, to not just view baptism as something that um, is merely uh, and primarily an expression of one's faith, but also and fundamentally, more essentially, um, a declaration of God's promises. So God is actually declaring um, our identity, and, and God is at work. It's not just you know us saying what we're doing. It's God saying what he's doing and um so uh that you know that played a part um and then just kind of through my reading i i kind of realized that i hadn't read much of the pedo baptist authors arguing for infant baptism i mainly had read you know baptists or heard baptists talk about why they're wrong but i hadn't actually read their case on their own terms so uh in, in seminary i was kind of struck by that and i i, I came across uh, an argument that sounded pretty compelling and then I just said, okay, I was kind of too quick on this whole baptism thing. I need to uh, actually study this and give the the Pado Baptist side, you know, more uh, research than I had. So I read a number of books on baptism at that time, uh, most of them from the Pado Baptist side because I had already read a lot from the Baptist side. Um, <clears throat> I read Calvin's Institutes at that time as well, and so 
um, just kind of a lot of things started clicking there. And I really came to see, oh, no, this is actually compelling. Um, this way of kind of relating the testaments and the people of God and the sacraments and, and everything. Um, uh, just by the end of that, I began to see um, just more of that kind of God's promises are to you and your children throughout Scripture. And the people of God is not, you know, just drastically different in the New Testament than in the Old, although there are some changes, but uh, not so as to exclude um, those who were previously included. Um, you see it kind of broadening and getting bigger with now more Gentiles coming in. And now um, the sign of the covenant isn't just for the males, but also women too are baptized. It sounds pretty similar to my own experience at the Baptist college that I was going to towards the end of my time there, where I uh, figured out that uh, a lot of the, a lot of the pastors that I listened to were actually not Baptist, but I didn't, I didn't even under, I didn't, I was so my, my view of uh, what the church um, thought on that subject was um, uh, so small. Um, like, like you said, I only knew the Baptist arguments against it. I didn't know any Pado Baptist arguments for it. And I was so ignorant. I didn't even know there were Protestants who baptized babies. <laughs> um, and mm -hmm. so when I finally found that out, uh, yeah, it did. It led me into a um, more study. What that did for me was it kind of laid the groundwork for me to uh, come into uh, the Anglican Church. Now, for you, what that did sounds like laid the groundwork for you to um, become a Presbyterian. What? Yeah. So during this time, whenever you're uh, researching, and then and then you you know you're kind of changing your mind on baptism um what was it about um presbyterianism that uh led you in that direction sure well you know at the time i was like you i mean if you grow up your whole life in a certain tradition you know you're you're probably quite kind of insulated and don't have a good lay of the land or sense of you know what the other you know denominations are like or whatever so i was kind of like that as well um, you know, I think Presbyterianism felt most just familiar because most of the guys that I read were Presbyterian, it felt like, at least, you know, beyond the Reformation, like, you know, um, and, and and not as many Anglicans would I read. So, um, yeah, for me with like my kind of church culture and upbringing, Presbyterianism felt a little more like familiar and, and like what I was used to kind of in its like approach to worship as well, like not as um I guess, ceremonial or formal, um, right? So, you know, the pastor's not there in a white robe. And I, I was still at the point of like, ah, white robe means Roman Catholic. And, you know, um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, honestly, that's a very visceral thing. But I actually think that was like a pretty primary reason. But also it was just circumstantial. There wasn't really a Anglican church near me. There were, you know, a, a few Presbyterian ones. So you know, there's that as well. But when I kind of zoomed out and I tried to say, okay, I'm convinced of infant baptism, but it's not like, and, you know, along with that goes with your view of children, your view of the covenants, families, you know, um, yeah, sure. It's, it's shaping various other things too, but it's not like my entire world has changed. It's not like I've changed on, on, uh, you know, the doctrines of grace or something like that. Um, and so, you know, I still felt fairly like rooted, I think largely due to my, um, undergraduate upbringing, like, it was great. The education I got at Bethlehem College was was really fantastic in terms of 
exposing me to the wealth, as I said, of the of the treasures of the church. Um, I was able to read from great theologians throughout different traditions, know where I agreed, know where I disagreed, and, and, and be willing to learn from them. So I didn't have this sense of like, oh, no, I've changed my mind on baptism. Maybe I'm Roman Catholic. <laughs> that just never <laughs> occurred. <laughs> Not I, I've studied the Reformation. I've, I've read stuff. I, I know why I'm Protestant. And, you know, I know why I'm Reformed. Um, at the time, so, yeah, at the time I was like, okay, so if I'm Protestant and I baptize babies, that's there's basically three options, Presbyterian, Anglican, or Lutheran. And I said, well, I can't be Lutheran because I disagree with their Christology in terms of consubstantiation and the ubiquity of Christ's flesh and that sort of thing. I had studied that and was comfortable with where I landed on that. So like, well, it can't be that, um, you know, Presbyterian or Anglican. And, and then I was like, well, you know, Anglicanism seems in, in terms of what their, you know, doctrinal standards are, seems pretty similar in, in many ways to Presbyterian, but the, the things that hindered me other than just the kind of, as I said, um, felt sense of like oh this is more ceremonial and therefore weird um and <laughs> the absence of anglican churches nearby um c- kind of the the other main reasons why at the time i i didn't pursue the anglican route was uh, for one i had you know always been taught and had landed in my own personal study um that that only men can have the teaching preaching authority office in the church of pastor elder overseer and I knew that that the ACNA, um, uh, you know, I knew that they had women priests and that they had women pastors. And so I was like, yeah, I don't like that. Um, that's not mm-hmm. where I am. I don't know how I feel about, you know, having to, to kind of serve in that context. And then also um, the Episcopacy. So, um, and that's a whole nother thing, church government. You know, my view of church government for me personally, like growing up, it was never really something talked about. It was always just kind of assumed. It wasn't really until I got to Bible college that I started to like read Mark Dever or others who would actually argue positively for kind of Baptistic congregationalism. And for a time I was like, sure, sounds good. Yeah, that's what the Bible requires. But then kind of as I studied more um, on that issue, I became more convinced that I'm not sure scripture lays that out. Um, all that plainly, like the precise mechanism required of church governance, mm-hmm. um, which um, made me a bit more on the Ure uh, Humano side of things, the the human law side of things when it comes to the particulars of church government. Um, so for me, I felt like I don't think scripture um, like forbids an Episcopal arrangement. Um so in that sense, I could I, I could be good with it, but um, I don't think it requires it either. And I thought I would have to affirm that scripture like explicitly requires it, which is a view that Anglicans hold, just as among Presbyterians, there are those who would argue that scripture explicitly requires or commands Presbyterian church government. And similarly with, with congregationalists, some would argue that scripture directly requires that as well. But I think you also find those within each who would say, well, it's more like in harmony with what we see in scripture, but it's not as though scripture explicitly, you know, delineates it. So that's kind of an internal debate, regardless of your kind of polity setup, mm-hmm. um, whether you're more on the divine law or human law side of things. Anyway, I thought that, well, I, I don't affirm, you know, by divine right that there has to be this episcopacy. Um, so I guess I can't be Anglican. Um, mm-hmm. 
yeah so those are the two biggies mm-hmm. um and you know i in time began to learn that actually the acna is a diverse body and there are parts of the acna in which i could hold to my views on ordination and on church governance and it would be okay and i didn't realize that at the time because you know i was kind of just outside of the context didn't really have a good um grasp of the lay of the land is this the time when you were at synod were you thinking through all these things yeah yeah so that that was a little bit later so so all of that that i just described kind of justified my joining and pursuing pastoral um like ordination in the presbyterian uh denominational context and then once i decided to do that um it was kind of like two or three years later after I had begun the ordination process and, and was ordained um, that I became uh, more open to serving in an Anglican context. So that came a couple years later. So backing up a little bit, well, I want to come back to, you know, what, uh, what was it that finally, you know, brought you over? What was it that motivated you to the pastorate in the first place? You know, for me, um, I was, uh, you know, to back up even further, <laughs> I grew up in a, a, a Baptist um, household, was taught the gospel from an early age. I really can't remember a time, you know, not believing in Jesus. But um, I do recall that I prayed the sinner's prayer uh, at age four with my mom. And from that point on, I was treated like, All right, you're a Christian. <laughs> hmm. um, but then... It was around like age seven um, that I um, was baptized. Um, I was allowed to attend the the big church, and uh, there was a sermon on baptism. So then I was like, "Why can't I be baptized?" And you know, my parents were like, "Oh, what do we do? Are you too young?" And all this, and so. But mm-hmm. I ended up being baptized quite young for Baptists, um, mm-hmm. at least you know, and you know, for some people, um, yeah, I was baptized at age seven, um, <clears throat> and you know, I went through kind of a season of, of kind of rebellion and immaturity and junior high, but in high school, the Lord, um, through, a, a conference I went to hearing some good preaching, um, and, and the spirit just kind of opened my heart and I think gave me a, um, like quantum leap in my sanctification, um, where, where all of a sudden I was just really, um, really just wanting to, um, read the Bible and, and, um, and digest it and, and teach it to others and, um, uh, you know, follow it. <laughs> you know, I think I was a Christian before then, but I just think that that was when, um, my faith kind of matured and, and the spirit, you know, gave me that, that kind of, uh, you know, gospel wakefulness or whatever we might want to call that, but kind of hand in hand with that. So I just also really had this passion to just like read and devour the scriptures. And I began, um, I think that was, the summer after my freshman year of high school, like from that point, I just devoured the scriptures. I just got a hold of Bible reading plans and began reading through the Bible every year. Um, pretty soon after that, began wrestling with the doctrines of grace, which sounded different. Like as I was reading the Bible, it sounded different from just kind of the pure free will. God, you know, is only love and uh, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing. Uh, reading the Bible caused me to kind of stumble into um, like reform soteriology, um, Calvinism, again, through the authors I've already mentioned, John Piper and others. 
And um, yeah, just kind of over time, uh, that, that passion and desire to read and teach and proclaim God's word morphed into a desire to, you know, to proclaim it, you know, from the pulpit on a Sunday and to actually care for a church um, and see a church body, um, uh, you know, be fed God's word. So, so, so really that was what drew me to the ministry was primarily, you know, I want to preach and teach and minister the word of God. Would you say that that same uh, desire to devour the scriptures and to just feed God's people, it, it, that's that's what fuels you even today, right? And what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Changing denominations and, and all of that. We can talk about all that kind of thing, but they're, you know, it's not so everything's changed. Like um, that is that is a fundamental uh, component, you know, probably the fundamental component, I believe, of pastoral ministry is exactly that. You're a minister of the word. And that's, you know, that's about sermons. That's about preaching, but it's also about teaching um, as well. It's about doing that informally. Um, like everything you do as a pastor could be viewed as a form of ministering the word to people. And that's something that um, there's a recent book on that that actually kind of made that point very well. Um, what is that called? It was like, it's by Lutheran and everyone was kind of plugging it two years ago, but, but he makes that point quite well. Um, it's going to bother me. I have to, there it is. Care of souls, uh, care of souls. I've heard of it. Yeah. Pastor's heart by Harold Senk I'm sorry. I'm not German. I'm not, you know, I'm not in that. <laughs> I, I don't know how to say that, but he makes that point so wonderfully. Um, I would just, you know, if I'm allowed to, I, I didn't ask, I just <laughs> did it. But uh, I would recommend that for just kind of seeing how all of ministry is ministering the word of God to people. Um, you know, even the sacraments, Augustine says, are visible words, right? So it, it's really everything. All that you're doing is, is you're ministering the word of the gospel. That's so important to remember, uh, especially within the context of the conversation we're having right now about, you know, changing denominations and all that. We have uh, listeners to this podcast that aren't Anglican, um, will probably never be Anglican. Um, our Cranmer Fellowship uh, program is not strictly for Anglicans. Um, it's we want to send out ministers into Christ's church, um, faithful ministers who feed God's people with the word of God. That is the job. Um, and you know, you need to find the right context in which to do that, the context in which you most align personally. But um, in the end, all of these <laughs> denominations are going to uh, go away and all of us are going to um, be in heaven together as one as one church. Um, and so, as we're here on earth, it's good to think through these things, think through, you know, what, in in what um, vein of the church am I going to do I align with? Am I going to go down and do that job? Right. But that's that's the job you're going to do just in, in which tradition are you going to do it? So when you were yep. you know pursuing ministry at, at these Baptist schools, thinking, you know, probably, well, I'm going to be a Baptist minister. That's what you're thinking. Right. And that doesn't that didn't change when you moved over into uh, being ordained in the Presbyterian church. It's like, it's kind of the same, same job. Right. And now yeah. same job um, as an Anglican vicar. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and, and your specific tradition will kind of spell out all the implications of that and, and some, you know, unique ways that, that will be unique to that tradition. But yeah, 
in substance, essentially, it's the same. It's the same job. Yeah. Well, so then what was it about the Anglican tradition that you thought, um, you know what, this is this is the way I want to go. This Anglican way is to me the best way for me to do this job. That's a good question. Um, so, as I said before, I kind of surveyed the Protestant Pado-Baptist options and said, yeah, it seems that Presbyterian is the best fit. And, you know, other than a general discomfort with maybe um, higher ceremony, uh, for lack of a better word, and not having an Anglican church near me, um, the the women's ordination, and um, what was the other thing? I forgot. <laughs> um, women's ordination and... Did you mention that? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you have to affirm, you know, kind of divine right episcopacy? Um, uh, those two issues, uh, plus the others, I was like, okay, so I guess probably not Anglican. Um, but yeah, I'll be Presbyterian. So I pursued that and and, and ministered in that context. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, and um, But as I was doing so, I was kind of developing like another area that I was developing in through this period of time, like from really my senior year of college to through like seminary and up to that point was kind of a theology of corporate worship, which I had never thought about. Again, like I said, with church governance, um, the whole question of what, why, and how do we do what we do on a Sunday morning is never really something I consciously thought about. I just grew up going to church and I kind of taking it for granted. And if you had asked me, I would have said, well, scripture says we should preach the word. So there should be preaching. And it says we should sing songs in a couple of places. So those should be there. But I'm not sure I would have been able to say much more than that um, <clears throat> as far as, you know, um, what should the shape, what should the components be of our corporate worship? How would we ground that in scripture and theology, which actually was a prompt I was given um, my senior year of college. And it was really profitable me, uh, pr- profitable for me to write that paper and, and do the research for that. I read a number of books on liturgy and worship and through that, I came to see like, yeah, there's, there's, um, when you really look into this, we don't just have to kind of start from scratch and, and, uh, just kind of draft up our own, but we can actually say, well, how has the church worshiped? Like what is, um, what is good that should be preserved from church tradition on this matter? Um, and, and when we do that and we look back, we see a lot of components that aren't always there in, you know, Baptist or non-denominational contexts, um, like confessing your sins in a corporate way, um, hearing an, an assurance of pardon, um, hearing not just one scripture reading the sermon text, which may at times be just like six verses, but hearing like multiple scripture readings and from both testaments, um, hearing reading, singing the Psalms, um, the Lord's Supper being viewed as a meaningful means of grace. Um, and um, so those and other things, yeah, the confession of the faith through Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, um, started to really value those things and want to have those things. Um, and and that's kind of how I was even in seminary as a Baptist. So I attended a, a, a Baptist church that was known for being a little bit more um, liturgical in those ways, um, having um, 
uh, 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 at least a prayer of confession. Um, and, you know, scripture readings from both Testaments, confession of the faith, um, they value the Lord's Supper. Um, so, um, but as I ministered in a Presbyterian context, um, you'll find some Presbyterian churches that are pretty, um, like, informal in terms of their worship and kind of minimalist it 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 might actually be kind of like what i just described a non-denominational church being it might kind of be kind of bare bones like just a couple songs a prayer sermon you know song and like that's like what it is but in others other presbyterian churches might be more liturgical and, and, and they'll incorporate more of you know responsive readings and um uh specific prayers um confessing the faith and that sort of thing so i was at a more liturgical presbyterian church and i was this assistant pastor and i began thinking as like a lead pastor if i was just in charge of like what what we would do um what would we do like how would i decide um and and that was something that kind of sent me back to studying um liturgies from uh the protestant reformation so this wonderful book came out I think toward the end of my time in seminary, actually, um, called Reformation Worship, um, which is by Mark Ernzi and David Gibson. I think I got their names right. You can check on that. But yeah, so it's a big book. But what it is, is um, it has some introductory essays on kind of worship and liturgy and how to think about it. Um, uh and uh, scriptural principles and, and that sort of thing. And those are really helpful. Like I would really recommend those essays um, to, to, to any listeners to consider. Like it's a big book, but you know, the essay part is just like 50 pages or so. Like you could at least read those. But the rest of the book, and it is, I checked, it is 736 pages. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the rest of the book is 26 liturgies, um, including historical introductions, um, to each of those um 26 liturgies from the early protestant reformation so um martin luther um john calvin martin bootser um zwingli um acolampadius bullinger um knox um Lasky, like some of these guys you, you just may not even be familiar with, but like all across the, the continent and um, in England as well, just looking at how, how did the Reformed Church in, you know, Germany worship? And you could see their order of worship. You could see what they did. Like they've compiled it together. Um, how did, how did um, the Swiss do it under Calvin? How did they do it under Bullinger? Um, how did, um, you know, Zwingli do it? Comparing all them together and then they also include in there the Book of Common Prayer. And they include more than one edition. I think they include um, the 1552 and the 1662. So you can kind of see some of those differences where they are there, which are pretty minimal, you know, but they are there. Um, so you get Cranmer in there as well. And I just remember reading that and just being blown away. I was like, wow, okay. So like one of the main points of the book is that the Reformation wasn't just a Reformation of doctrine it was a reformation of worship like the reformers they took worship seriously and uh they reformed that as well <laughs> and um 
and, and kind of to a man, all those early reformers um, thought it was valuable to have a shared common form of prayer and worship. And there are set prayers in there, you know, um, which is just not something that contemporary American Presbyterianism is very, I think, comfortable with the notion of set prayers. And maybe that comes over from in part, the kind of non-denominational low church setting we're in that, that doesn't value them either. Um, but also it, it, it actually does go back to uh, the Scottish Presbyterians as well. When you look at the Westminster Directory of Worship, it does actually give more um, more materials than you might find in the modern American Presbyterian Church. Um, the Westminster Directory does say what sort of things should be in the service, but it actually doesn't say like, um, here are some set prayers to say. Um, and so that was kind of the difference. And I was like, wow, that's kind of the outlier actually, because Calvin and Zwingli and Luther and Bootser and like all these other guys in the Dutch reform, they all were okay with them. Like they all thought they were good. And, um, yeah. So anyway, that was kind of eye opening, um, and just so helpful. So then I thought, okay, as Presbyterian minister, um, you know, what am I going to do? Um, how am I going to order our worship? All the reformers seem to have valued having a shared form and, um, and, uh, and, and, and that including even like set forms of prayer, uh, specific words to say that sort of thing. Um, and, and they all thought that was valuable. Well, how am I going to come up with it? Am I just going to kind of mishmash and put them all together myself? Um, why do that when I have the book of common prayer? So, um, out of all those liturgies, I was really blown away by the Book of Common Prayer in particular. And um, and I was also just kind of like, well, I'm American. America, you know, I'm also kind of English as well. Like, that's what my, uh, you know, ancestry is. So it's kind of like, and we're in the English-speaking world. You know, we're not in the German-speaking world or the Dutch-speaking world or, you know, and so forth. Um, so I was like, okay, if I'm kind of in the English-speaking Protestant church and I like liturgy was gotta be the book of common prayer i mean right <laughs> um so anyway um i really started valuing the book of common prayer started using it in my own kind of personal like devotions um like morning and evening prayer and um to the extent i was able as an assistant pastor um and had you know, some measure of control over certain prayers. I would incorporate some prayers from the BCP for the confession and assurance and um, like the prayer of humble access and things like that. So um, yeah, that, that essentially for me was the main draw into Anglicanism was this idea of um, I don't have to make it all up myself. There already is an excellent resource available to us. And um, it, you know, that's the book of common prayer. And as a Presbyterian, it's probably weird if you just straight up use it like entirely. <laughs> um, people might kind of look at you funny, but um, uh, you know, as an Anglican, that's like part of the deal. So that caused me to kind of look into Anglicanism a bit more, reach out to some friends, learn that my potential hangups actually weren't things that needed to keep me away. And um, one of them, you know, recommended me to Bishop Dobbs and to the Diocese of the Living Word. So I got in contact with him, and that's what landed me at the. Uh, synod that you mentioned this mm -hmm. is where i you know i think would be a good transition into a, a, a discussion on the formularies of the anglican church because um 
this was so for me, you know, the prayer book, I loved uh, the prayer book. That was a big um, that that was a big drawing um, factor for me as well. Um, what there was a lot of stuff as well about Anglicanism that I um, really liked and that sort of made sense to me. Um, in the end, it was um, the 39 articles of religion that just hammered it home for me. I just thought that there was just the most succinct um, doctrinal statement out there. Uh, and I, I was just thought, man, I, I align myself fully with this and I want to I want to uphold these. Uh, you and I are, um, and really, um, our our whole diocese and, and many Anglicans are very uh, passionate about upholding these formularies, these foundations of what Anglicanism is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I started studying it um, initially, right when I uh, had read the the Reformation worship, got interested in the BCP. And I started reconsidering Anglicanism. You know, as a part of that, I read the 39 articles. Um, I did uh, get a hold of a 1662 Book of Common Prayer. Uh, it was kind of right around this time that the international edition released. So I got my hands on that and read through like um, uh, that. I checked out even like some of the homilies. Uh, as well, because Article 35 mentions the homilies, and I was like, "Wow, these are these are like Puritan paperbacks." Like, I still think you could you could publish those homilies individually and not say who wrote them, and and like the NR Truth would just think they're Puritan paperbacks. Um, <laughs> because wow, I was like, like as Presbyterian, I was like, "You're speaking my language here. Like, <laughs> this is familiar. Like, this is the stuff." Uh, so I was just kind of amazed. I was like, "Wow, I didn't know all this was here," um, and. Um, yeah, so for me, like the formularies were, um, like I was just like, yeah, this is, these are the Anglican standards of, of doctrine and worship, um, and these are great. You know, for me, I was already in a context where I had to affirm the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechisms. Um, so for me, the thirty-nine articles were definitely shorter. <laughs> uh than that um but i was like substantially similar um i'm not being asked to say or affirm anything in the 39 articles that 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 would actually go against <laughs> what i had to affirm in the westminster confession of faith uh there's more detail in the westminster confession of faith um which might give the impression that anglicanism is just inherently less detailed i'm actually not sure that's the case uh, because again article 35 commends the book of homilies you buy a book of homilies, you're in for some, like, it will take you a long time to read all those, uh, or you can listen to them online. Um, I think, I think the book version I have of them is like 700 pages. I mean, there's a lot there. And then, you know, there's the catechism um, as well. And um, kind of an early explanation of that catechism that was officially sanctioned, I think under Elizabeth the first was Alexander Noble's catechism. So that's one I really valued to and have read substantial portions of um there's a lot in our tradition okay it's, it's not only just purely you know you know doctrinal minimalism uh there's a lot there um and and the, but the 39 articles are such a beautiful summary that i'm you know more than happy to subscribe to um so yeah for me coming into it just the whole idea that you could be anglican and not be protestant that, like to me i was just like that is absurd 
and yeah it's still absurd to me <laughs> yeah when i yeah when i read the 39 articles i um yeah i i walked away thinking my gosh this is just protestant christian faith um yeah and i actually the other day uh one of our parishioners he told me that um uh you know he he he's not um he has a hard time with predestination and election and all that. And he was like, that's actually why, you know, I haven't actually like been confirmed and, and decided to become an Anglican is because that's in the third nine articles. I was like, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, yeah. It is, it is a fully reformed um, doctrinal uh, statement. Would So, you know, mm-hmm. we should, um, I guess we, we should define what those formularies are real quick uh, for, for those who, who might not know oh, yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, so yeah. So the 1662 uh, book of common prayer, which uh, I'll say kind of how I th- I've thought about these, these formularies, uh, the prayer book, which um, is the form of our worship, the form of our devotion. And of course that's going to correspond with our doctrine as well. It's not going to, there's not going to be anything in there that's, um, inconsistent with, you know, our, our doctrine too, but that's the form of our, um, devotion, uh, or our worship, if you will, uh, the 39 articles of religion, which is the form of our doctrine, what, what we believe the ordinal, uh, which is the form of our, our governance, right. Who, who leads the church. Um, you, that's, those are our, our, um, our services of ordination, it's interesting. The homilies sometimes make that list of formularies or not, right? I've heard some people say it's just uh, the prayer book articles and ordinal. I've heard that it's those plus the homilies. What, what do you make of that? It's certainly the the 39 articles um, and the the prayer book. I don't know of anyone who would disagree with that. And the ordinal as well, um, you know, outlining we have bishops, we have priests, we have deacons. Um, so those, you know, quite clear, and no one would really dispute that. But the homilies get neglected. Um, in some editions of the, of the 39 articles you might find online, there's even like brackets put in there, and it's like, this part we kind of accept, but not really, or, you know, things like that. Um, and uh, that sometimes happens with the homilies. It's like... Um, these were good for those times, but, you know, not necessary for ours. But, um, I mean, yeah, the issue there is, um, let me pull out my 39 articles here. Uh, the 39 articles include the homilies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and not just in 35, but actually in uh, Article 11 of the Justification of Man, which wonderfully says that we are justified by faith only. And... It says that is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort as more largely is expressed in the homily of justification. So the thing that articles are assuming the homilies, it's like assuming the homilies are explaining what we're talking about here. Um, and yeah, so by the time you get to 35, um, it makes sense that, that it says the, the second book of homilies doth contain a godly and wholesome doctrine and necessary for these times, as doth the former book of homilies, which were set forth in the time of Edward the Sixth, and therefore we judge them to be read in churches by the ministers diligently and distinctly, that they may be understanded of the people. So that's what Article Thirty Five says, and 
you know, it's there. <laughs> Article 35 is there uh, of the homilies. And it even lists out all the names of each homily in that second book. But it commends the first book as well. So, yeah, I don't think you can really get around that. Um, now, what I don't think that means is that you have to agree with every single individual statement or every single, um, you know, scripture reference or um, phraseology in all of them. I don't think that um, is a consistent way of looking at it. Um, but for reasons we don't necessarily have to get into here, but I do think what it means is the, the, the teaching of each homily is accepted. Um, uh, if you read these homilies and you're like, oh, I just totally disagree with that one. I wouldn't read that. I'd be like, well, that's a problem. <laughs> so the, the 39 articles as a whole, um, is more kind of, I don't know how to put it, like, um, more strict like in terms of um i think you should have to state a very specific exception to you know if you disagree with any part of the articles but the homilies is um it's more what is the teaching of each homily do you agree with what is um, being put forward in these and such that you would even be willing to read it in a church like um you know maybe there's a couple things that could have been phrased better in your opinion or um even a particular argument you don't necessarily agree with but it's not like the whole um, or the majority of that homily that you would just reject. So that's kind of how I approach it. Um, and, you know, historically, that is how it's been done. The homilies have been uh, included um, as a source of doctrine and um, uh, like historically within the U.S., um, even in like the mid 1800s, um, the, uh, the Council of Bishops was starting to get concerned about the Oxford movement in Anglo-Catholicism taking a hold at a particular seminary. And this House of Bishops um, sent a series of like, I don't know, a hundred questions <laughs> or so to the faculty of this school. And among those questions, they were like saying, what are you teaching about essentially the necessity of ministers to affirm the 39 articles and state anything that they don't agree with? And then it also says, what do you teach concerning the homilies as expository of the of, of the doctrine of the church? So like even back then in America, they were being talked about that way by the Council of Bishops. And we see that today, too, in the Cairo Covenant, I think it is, uh, within the global Anglican kind of movement. Um, I, I think it's the Cairo. There's so many great statements that have been released just in the past like year or so. Um calling Anglicans back to the formularies as a way of kind of ensuring we're not departing from scripture, old teaching and orthodoxy. And, and so they'll kind of list them. And there's one, I think it's Cairo that, that, um, that puts the homilies in there um, <laughs> as a, a formulary. So yeah, the homilies are in there. You, you may not always hear them put beside or alongside of the others, but they are within <laughs> the 39 articles. So yeah, and we actually uh, we recorded a podcast on the homilies. It'll it'll actually come out uh, this this week. Well, at the time we're recording, but when this one comes out last week, <laughs> um, so if you're listening <laughs> to this and you and you haven't listened to that that episode um, on the homilies, um, you can go go back and, and do that um, with these formularies. Okay. Um, like, what's the purpose of having this? I know you, you touched a little bit on it regarding um, worship uh, and how it, it's going to mm -hmm. form that. 
Um, what role uh, really do, do these formularies meet? Not just in the Anglican, but it, maybe specifically the Anglican pastor. Um, like, what should be his relationship to these formularies? Yeah, um, I think the the purpose of the formularies is to ensure that there is um, um, a shared kind of framework and a shared kind of um, uh, a, a shared theology among the Anglican uh, churches. So that's really how they're intended to function. And that's why ministers are required to subscribe to the, the 39 articles and uphold the Book of Common Prayer and that sort of thing. It's so that it's it, it shouldn't be this, a situation to where you go to one church and they believe and teach this. You go to another and, and, they, and they believe and teach that. Um, now, of course, there'll be some disagreements on, you know, lesser issues, but the formularies are meant to give a, um, unification uh, to a particular church communion. And so that's kind of what they do. They say, this is the teaching of scripture as our church has received it. Um, and that's important because some people will discount the formularies, whether it's the form of worship of the Book of Common Prayer or uh, the form of doctrine of the, uh, of the 39 articles or whatever it may be. They'll dismiss all that and they'll say, okay, well, that's, um, that's not the Bible. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I shouldn't have to affirm that. Um, which kind of just overlooks like, well, the Apostles Creed also isn't the Bible. I hope you affirm that. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the Nicene Creed. Um, <clears throat> the purpose of uh, creeds and confessions and, and, um, and uh, formularies is to ensure that, um, that those who would agree that the Bible is our, um, is our, highest authority in the church um, would agree that it is the, how do the 39 articles put it? Um, the 39 articles affirm that that scripture alone is um, what we can uh, draw our doctrine from and say that you must believe this in order to be saved, or you must do this in order to be saved so that Whatever is not read therein or, or may be proved thereby is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of faith or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. Um, later on regarding the councils, it says that councils can err and they have authority only, um, only insofar as um, they are um, uh taken out of the Holy Scripture, that their statements can be shown to be gleaned from Scripture themselves. So the Scripture is our highest authority. Scripture is over the church, basic Protestant principle, principle of Anglicanism as well. But some would say, okay, since Scripture is our highest authority, then we don't need any other affirmations of faith. We don't need the articles. We don't need, you know, confessions. Um, and to say that we should kind of rally around them is to, is to kind of dethrone Scripture. I would say it's a way of upholding Scripture. Because um, false teachers in the church and heretics um, rarely are saying, uh, oh, yeah, I hate scripture. What they're doing is they're twisting scripture and they're saying, here's what scripture's saying. And they're saying something totally out of you know, left field, right? <laughs> um, so the purpose of creeds, confessions is to, um, is to actually uphold the teaching of scripture by clarifying 
how we understand the scriptures teaching on any number of areas. Now that doesn't make everything that the, that the uh, 39 articles talk about a first order issue. That's not what I'm saying. Um, uh, but it is saying that um, these, these articles are ex- faithful expressions of the teaching of scripture. <laughs> um, so they're useful, I think, for giving that unity uh, within the church. But for the individual pastor, I think um, that the pastor should know them, affirm them, teach them to the people. Like people should know, like, this is what it means to be Anglican rather than Lutheran, rather than Roman Catholic, rather than whatever else you could be. Like what is distinctive about Anglicanism? Well, you know, teach the 39 articles, (laughs) Uh, you know, and in so doing you're teaching the scripture um, as your church has received it. So, um, yeah, I just say agree to the um, agree to the the formularies, um, teach the formularies, and use them um, in, in in a kind of church setting as as a rallying point of unity, which is exactly what the Global South Fellowship of Anglicans are doing. It's what the ACNA does in its founding documents by identifying the thirty nine articles and and Book of Common Prayer. Um, we're already doing this, right? Um, but let's keep doing it. Let's do it more consistently where we can. These formularies and any doctrinal statement serve as guardrails for us. Um, the creeds, right, um, serve as these the kind of fin- fence us in uh, the within the the Catholic faith, um, and uh, even more so, right? As Anglicans, these formularies. Um, you know, they they don't just serve as um, unifying tools and and help us to um, to uh, be ministering the um, in in similar or in the same same way, but they're also uh, accountability, right? Um, you can. It, it's nice to know what you're signing up for. It's nice to know that as a as a pastor. Uh, in the Anglican church, you, you know, there's, okay. There's so many discussions and debates and arguments on what is Anglicanism and like Anglican identity, right? It's always a, it's always a hot topic. Like what is an Anglican, but um, really like you've been saying, when you go back to these formularies, if you you go back to these and you do your best to kind of conform yourself to those, uh, and the teaching therein, you're you're given a tradition. You're given something to steward, like you said earlier. You're not you're not thrown out into the desert and said, "Okay, uh, figure it out." You know, um, build your own church, build your own worship, create your own doctrinal statement. What do you believe? I heard once actually uh, from a Presbyterian professor uh, talking about, um, what, you know, why we have catechisms and, and creeds. And he said something to the, the effect uh, of um, that it's because the Bible is a big book and life is very short. <laughs> um, we like what these, what catechisms, what creeds and doctrinal statements, formularies, what they do is they, they take what the Bible says and hand that to us um, in a, in a palatable um, way, uh, a way that we can digest. Right. 
Because you can, you know, you can say, of course, yeah, all I, I just need my Bible. So, okay, to an extent, you're correct. Um, but what do you believe about church governance from the Bible? Um, and then you're, well, you're going to be flipping pages and you're going to come up with a, probably a bunch of different interpretations as to, way, as to the way it could go. Um, so it's nice to know. Uh, it's nice to have uh, something written down that uh, expresses biblical teaching um, that you can point to and say, yes, the Bible does um, does teach this and uh, it's what I hold to. Um, so it's mm-hmm. it's very nice as a as pastors, you know, it's nice to have that. I was actually now running out of time, but um, I was talking to a, a visitor at our church last, uh, just this last Sunday, actually, um, who hadn't come to an Anglican church before, but was sort of tired of the non-denominational church and how things are just they'll just change all the time and i said yeah i mean even for myself it's nice to know that i i come in here on sunday and i don't get to pick and choose what we're gonna be doing and saying and praying (laughs) um i uh i i i am um within the bounds uh of uh of our 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 prayer book um and i know what we're going to be praying and what we're going to be reading um is going to be scriptural uh, it's all going to be true. And uh, I know God's going to listen to us. Um, so what you just said, uh, agree to them, right? Adhere to them and, and teach them. Right. Yeah. The problem, ha- and this happens for Presbyterians too, um, <clears throat> in terms of the, the PCUSA versus the PCA. The The problem is, is always going to be, we have these great um, standards, but we don't talk about them. And um, if they're not actually like valued, pointed to, and, and used as a tool of teaching, discipleship, that sort of thing, then they're just going to be neglected. They're not going to be known or understood. And then they're going to be rejected. <laughs> so it's it, it's pretty important, I think, for, for Anglicans to... Um, to kind of point to what their own confession says. And again, in doing so, it's, it's not as an alternative to pointing to what scripture says. We should do that as well. We should appeal directly to scripture for things, but also within the context of saying like, what is an Anglican? What is allowable uh, for, you know, ministers to be teaching? That's where the standards come in, right? Providing those fences and guardrails within which good things can run wild. What you just said about prayer um, in church um, reminds me of a quote I heard recently from from C.S. Lewis that someone shared. Uh, this isn't exact, but he said, um, like, he was saying, the problem with um, kind of extemporaneous prayers or not using set prayers in worship is it puts the congregation in a a point of they actually kind of constantly have to be assessing that prayer and deciding if they agree with it um, and can say amen to it. So they're kind of analyzing and needing to stand over it and kind of judge it and make sure it's legit. And then they can, you know, rather than actually just praying it, (laughs) Um, which was, I thought, kind of a fascinating point um, in the context of worship. Let's uh, let's all pray together. and, And what better way? then um, you know what's going to be prayed 
uh, and 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 you know that it's it's uh, in accordance with scripture uh, because you've already encountered it, you've read it before, you've heard it before. So then you're able to be like, oh yes, this is I can just pray along to this, you know. Um, so anyway, that just reminds me of a of a C.S. Lewis quote there. But yeah, I think that that is um, yeah just something that Anglicanism or at least maybe. <laughs> Anglicanism in the U.S. really um, needs. And, you know, that's one thing I miss about being Presbyterian is they seem to not have as, well, at least like in the PCA and stuff, they seem to not have as deep identity issues uh, to where, like, I've never heard of a Presbyterian who would say I'm not Protestant. Um, <laughs> but I have heard of Anglicans who do so. So, and, and, and that just, you know, reflects a, uh, as I was saying, a um, a neglect of the formularies that leads to eventually just a rejection of the formularies. So yeah, I would say you know that's one strength of, of where I came from is knowing who you are, being willing to kind of on the whole um, point people to and hold one another accountable by um, what our actual you know confession says. Um, Anglicans, uh, I think, are moving in the right direction. And I think if we keep going the way that things have been going as a result of kind of um, the Kigali commitment and Cairo coming and all these things, that uh, that the future is looking bright for for confessional Anglicans. You know, this is why you know we're inviting people to join us at Good Shepherd to train for uh, ministry. You know, you, people don't need to be an Anglican to do this, but you'll. By, by serving and I think training in an Anglican setting, uh, that can be helpful in someone thinking through, you know, what what guardrails do I want to make sure I have in my doctrine and worship wherever I serve? And do I need to, you know, do I need to make that up for myself? Or maybe is there something here um, that I can I can steward instead? Maybe it will be the Anglican guardrails, maybe not, but Anglicanism does offer some great ones in the formularies. Clayton, thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, you've been a superb guest. Um, other than the podcast, a BCP Proper's podcast. Um, other than that, um, I understand people can find you on your Twitter. Um, and uh, that you said that's where you're most active. If someone wants to follow you, uh, go to um, follow you on Twitter or Holy Cross. Uh, you said you guys have a website or Facebook group? or Yeah, um, on Twitter, uh, it's it's at Clayton Hutchins, and then um, the the church Twitter is at Anglican Cross. So both of those would take you to um, the church website and our Facebook page and so forth. So yeah, fantastic. Oh, well, my prayers go out to you, your family, and your church. God bless you, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me. God bless. And with that, we will conclude, and Lord willing, we will see you next week.